This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. My name is Amy. I'm your host here at Worth Recovery. I'm also a sex addict, and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. So welcome to episode 68. This is the continuation of our interview with Dr. Aaron Glade. If you haven't been following us, uh, Dr. Glade is my was my original therapist in sex recovery, sex addiction recovery, I should say. And um, and while I was in Seattle this past summer, he graciously volunteered. I should say maybe voluntold. Have you heard that term? <laughs> he agreed. I should say that's the probably the best term. He agreed to do an interview with me about trauma and be on the podcast because his take on trauma and the information that I learned from him about trauma really, really helped in my personal recovery, understanding trauma better, understanding how it affects me, understanding how it plays with addiction, understanding all of those things. And so in episode 66, we started that interview and today is the concluding portion in episode 68. So I'm super excited to share that with you. Before we jump in with that, just two quick announcements. Don't forget, we have our Worth Recovery event coming up in January, January 21st, 2017. That's going to be here in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm super excited about this event. We've got women flying in from all over the country to attend with us, and it's going to be amazing. I'm just really excited. We're going to have three amazing speakers. Candice Christiansen is going to speak about trauma and addiction. Jackie Pack is going to speak about boundary essentials. And Lou Duke is going to speak about shame resilience. I'm just really excited for this opportunity for you to meet together, spend some time together, get connected with other women who are in recovery. We have some women who are coming that I'm just really excited about meeting and being there and spending time with them. So, If you haven't got your ticket, get on the website, worthrecovery.com, W-O-R-T-H-R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y.com. Go to the events section and read all about it. Look at the schedule and you can purchase your ticket there. Early bird pricing is available until December 1st. So you want to make sure you get take advantage of that. Also, just a shout out to our newest Worth Warrior, Shelly. So excited to have you join us in supporting women throughout the world. Also, shout out to our newest countries that have joined the list. We now have pretty regular listeners in Italy and in France and the UK. We're so excited about all of you who are joining us and who are spending time and working on your own recovery, because that's the point of all this, right? Is to work on our own recovery, to own our own recovery, and to move forward. So I'm super excited to welcome Shelly and welcome all our new listeners. If you want to join the Worth Warriors, become a part of supporting this podcast and guaranteeing that it stays free for all of the listeners throughout the world, you can do that on the website. Go to worthrecovery.com and join the Worth Warriors for as little as $4 a month. That's less than lunch for like one day, ladies. You can support 
Worth Recovery and be able to join the Worth Warriors. It gets you special perks and discounts. You get a discount code for the upcoming event in January. And in addition to that, you get to know that your money is going to help support this podcast and continue to make it free for all listeners throughout the world. Because we have a lot of listeners throughout the world. And I'm just really grateful for those of you that continue to donate to be able to help stay free for all of us so that we can all benefit from learning from each other. All the details for Becoming a Worth Warrior are available on the website, as well as all the details about our upcoming event in January. The website is worthrecovery.com, www.worthrecovery.com. Now let's jump back in here with this interview with Dr. Glade. We had just finished in episode 66, we had just finished talking about the different treatment options, different forms of treatment and therapeutic techniques that can be used to treat trauma. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit. I'm excited to bring you the ending of this wonderful interview with Dr. Glade about trauma. Here we go. So, um, okay, so I have a question though. So we have like, you know, you're saying 68% of us that are addicts, you know, are roughly around there have, are also trauma survivors, right? And, um, now, I would say, I would add to that. That's an old number that right. parents had. I would add to that. So I'm sure it's much higher because he's looking at people that would identify um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, right? And a lot of, some emotional abuse you can really, it's easy to spot too, right? Mm-hmm. You you walk in, you know, however many years ago and you're like, I've never experienced a trauma, right? Right. I but, mean, I remember so saying that. So I would that say too. that that number is much, much higher if we start taking into account this kind of stuff, like right. attachment trauma and things that that you don't necessarily think of as as well. Somebody caused you trauma, but again, enmeshment, extreme disengagement, those mm-hmm. are traumatic for a child, mm-hmm. right? So if we started looking at attachment theory, and again, we could I could go way into that, but you know. Um, Bowlby did these experiments with monkeys and would deprive them of a mother and and even just having a fake mother that had carpet on it they would cuddle to that as an attachment figure right um, and if they didn't have any of that they would shake uncontrollably and they couldn't manage life they couldn't manage anything there was so much anxiety and yeah. stress um, well that's what happens to a child it's it's you know if you look at a child and a mother and how they or a father too and how they interact and how the kids weave in and out of mom's legs and, and do that, it's all about attachment and it's all about right. being safe. And, and if we don't have those secure attachments, our emotion, our ability to emotionally regulate is off. Because mm-hmm. kids don't have that, especially babies, don't right. have that ability to emotionally regulate. They need that attachment figure to emotionally regulate. And even as toddlers, we don't have that. Preschoolers, right, we need that. You see, I mean, my teenagers, you know, are, uh, they still, are working on this this attachment thing and, and right. parents right and so um so when we experience it again it's not an obvious trauma it's not something sometimes that even shows up always on if i were looking at ptsd right it doesn't show up on that definition right mm-hmm. but but the effects get played out in things like addiction things like uh you know in, in its multiple forms food sex shopping you know um and uh, anger, um, emotional rage, dysregulation, right. rage, right? right. And so it comes out in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So why then, like if, if we're all trauma survivors, I'm totally generalizing yeah. here, right? 
So we all have some form of trauma, and we're playing that out maybe in our addiction or using our addiction as a coping mechanism or something like that, a symptom of our trauma. Mm -hmm. So why don't we just go straight to treating the trauma? Okay, why, so why do we like why don't we just start yeah. EMDR like the first day that I show up in your yeah. your office? So um, I used to think that that's what you're supposed to do, right? In fact, I think that's what I was always taught, right? Mm -hmm. Is you you poke around and find out where it hurts, and then you keep poking, right? And you work on that part, and uh, and outside of addiction, you know, maybe that's. Maybe that's right, right? So you teach some coping skills and then you go right into it. Um, the problem with addiction is that these addiction, addictive neuropathways are so strong in our brain. There's, their sole purpose is to remove you from your feelings and remove you from whatever it is you're experiencing, which is intolerable, right? Loneliness, fear, uh, rage, um, abandonment. Uh, abandonment. I mean, all of these, these feelings that are intolerable um, the purpose of the addiction is to remove you from that and not feel it, right? And, and so what happens is if you do, if you go right to the trauma first, if, if, you, if you even know about it, right? But you go right to the trauma first, well, this is the thing that's most tender, and it's what the addiction developed in order to protect you from having to feel that. And if I poke there, that's going to hurt. Right? And what have you what is your brain told you you're supposed to do? Those neuropathies in your brain are so strong that when you hurt, and when that hurts, you go to your addiction. Mm -hmm. And so you can just get on the merry-go-round of your addiction. So my first supervisor who had been treating sexual addiction for 30 years, mm -hmm. uh, first supervisor in treating sexual addiction, he said, So you know, this is the difference between treatment and, and therapy, is that in treatment, the first year of addiction treatment is basically cognitive behavioral how do I not act out today mm -hmm. right? and you need to set that scaffolding up I call it scaffolding I don't know if that's what he said but set that up so that now they have a firm recovery going they've, they've learned to identify their problem they're, they've surrendered they've uh, learned to make phone calls started to make connections with people in, in recovery um, and, and they've set this life up around them so that it becomes safe to now touch the core issues. That to now driving. poke. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's it's now safe to touch the core issues that are driving the addiction. Right. right. And and it just if you do it too early, it just they can't touch it. Number one, there's usually too many defenses around it to touch it at all. And if you do, it's going to send them to their addiction. Mm -hmm. So it just it doesn't work. Right. They don't stay sober, and you can't touch. If somebody's continuing to act out, you really can't touch that stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've said this probably a million times on this podcast, and I say it with every woman that I sponsor, that I work with, anything like that, just that what you told me my first appointment, that recovery is a three to five year process, you mm -hmm. know, and that that first year, I mean, like really that first year mm -hmm. was all about trying to stay sober, trying to learn enough, build enough connections, learn enough coping skills to be able to, like you said, get through one day without acting out, mm -hmm. you know? And it took me like 18 months to really put enough, um, enough scaffolding in place yeah. to, to stay sober. You know, it was 18 months. That doesn't months. mean that it was 18 months until you started experiencing it. No, no, right? no, no, right, and right. It's, it's that um, all through that process, you were doing things, you were working on 
many different aspects of this whole thing, right? right. Um, from understanding what your cycle looks like, from understanding, you know, what are your triggers, from understanding um, you know, what are how to how to start making connections with people and, mm-hmm. and start connecting with people in twelve step and groups and and um, boundaries and all these things that are important. There, some of them do t- tap in, and most of them at all tap into your core, right? Mm-hmm. Those core mm-hmm. issues. But it's not until a little bit later that now, okay, all this is set up, and now it, you're, it's safe to now start poking mm-hmm. so that I can deal with these, you know, and a lot of the protective layers are peeled back. Even, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I have a very clear memory of the day that you told me that you thought my family, like growing up in my family, would have been dysfunctional or traumatic. Like mm-hmm. you put your arm up. I don't know if you remember this, but I like no. I still to this day can remember it. You kind of put your arm up and you were like, okay, if this is like, you know, totally healthy family, like a hundred percent. And then all the way you kind of moved your arm over here, all the way over here was like 180, like totally dysfunctional, right? You're like, I would put your family at like about here, you know, about 75%, 75 to 85%, you said. Mm-hmm. And I like. I don't remember that. But I'm okay. sure you don't remember that, but I do. Mm-hmm. I remember like like just sitting there being like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like my family was not dysfunctional. Well, first, we all have, not we all have traumatic. family loyalty, right? Right. We all have that. Right. And and like that that was like mind blowing for me. And really, I, for me, like I look at that as the pivotal moment when I started to like you're saying poke at my trauma and say. Okay, like if you think that and you're a therapist and like you know just a little bit of what I've told you, right? Like then maybe there is something yeah. here trauma-wise that I need to address. And this this is where it gets sticky because I I'm not in the I don't I'm trying not to be in the game of blaming parents. No, no, no. And yeah. and you know, it's I, I always do try and look at it that parents usually do the best they can with what they have and mm-hmm. all of that. And and yet there are times when our families are emotionally dysfunctional, right? Mm-hmm. And and there are things we take out, even if we come out of it without being, you know, uh, living on the street, you know, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. or whatever, um, we often carry things, right? And whether it's, you know, for you, it's this extreme level of enmeshment was a big part of it. There's other things, but that was one of them, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to establish some very simple boundaries for yourself was important. You know, trying to establish some beginning around an identity outside of um, whatever your job in the family was. Right. Because right? you weren't, I mean, even, no, your job when you were a kid was that same job. Mm-hmm. But you were 36 or 7 or whatever mm-hmm. it was, right? Mm-hmm. And that was still your job. Right. And everybody relied on you for their, for to do that job for them to function. Right. We're talking about adults who were married themselves. Right. And yet they still relied on you for them to function. Right. From 900 miles away, you had to do your job. Mm-hmm. Right? They wouldn't say that now, probably, because they wouldn't realize it until you quit doing your job. Right. And then they really quickly <laughs> realized it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and just simple things that, that I don't remember exactly. You would be able to tell me um, specific stories, but I remember you saying things to you or you saying things like I did this or I did that or said something and and it went around your siblings like fire until it came back to you at the end of the day like everybody called everybody you know and and now I I come from a family that's probably more on the disengaged side of that Mm -hmm. spectrum right but I was just amazed at how 
emotionally connected everybody's emotions are in that. Um, and it's like one person can't feel. You couldn't talk, call your mom and cry without now it going around everyone. Uh, and you get a call from your brother and says, okay, mom told me you're crying. You know, and it's gone through all the fam- siblings. You know, right, what's going right, on? right, right. I mean, that's just, so that was that level of emotional enmeshment. Right? And, and uh, that can be traumatic, right, over time when we become, you know, an adult and can't have our own emotions and can't have our own thoughts and ideas and beliefs and opinions mm-hmm. uh, or ac- and actions without you know, everything tumbling. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So we spend the first time, you know, the first little bit of our recovery mm-hmm. as addicts in just building that scaffolding yeah. to the point where we can actually deal with mm-hmm. the trauma that's going on mm-hmm. in our lives. And, and so... So we, we go through some kind of treatment, we go through some kind of therapy, we do, you know, all of this. What do we, how do we expect things to play out for the rest of our lives? Are we gonna be continually, you know, reliving trauma? Do we get over that? Do we like, I mean, you know, how do we, I, I how would do we say we, we heal from trauma, right? And, and for some people, there's an ongoing process of healing throughout mm-hmm. their lives for whatever reason, you know, they, they've lived in, had some experiences that it will be an ongoing process. Now, it doesn't that doesn't mean they'll always be in the depths of of their trauma? But um, we can heal, and and people uh, can experience that that uh, healing of you know I've I've had people. Gosh, I'm thinking of I had a 65 year old addict come in who believed knew, knew that he was. Uh, abused as a young man, mm-hmm. young man meaning child, mm-hmm. right, young child, but yet said, oh, it happened, but, you know, it doesn't really affect me anymore, and yet this person was acting out in the same way that they were abused as a child, mm-hmm. and uh, and it wasn't until, there's part of that, part of the, the therapy process, and then at some point engaging in, in EMDR is what, what we use for him, um, it was like, for him, it's a you know night and day. Mm-hmm. Right? I, this it doesn't bother me anymore, and and he he realized certain things. It wasn't just the experience of that. It was also had to do with parents and and fear and attachment and all these things. But yet that trauma was able to be resolved. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. I know one of my biggest fears about recovery. So I've been doing this for five years. Mm-hmm. Is that you know. It's never going to end, right? In six months, something's going to happen and all my trauma is going to get triggered again. And I'm going to be like, when, you know, when does this end? I remember one time being in your office and being like, I want to sing in the shower again. Like, you know, like just, just little simple things that I wanted back from my life before I started this process of, of recovery. You know, you got that back yet? I have. Okay. I have. Absolutely. Absolutely. How, but how do we continue, I guess, like what thoughts or ideas around how we build that hope and then continue the process, you know, that's going to eventually heal us. How do we build hope? Um, one is, yeah, (laughs) I would say engage with people that are further along the process than you, right? Okay. So you can see, um, that, that it does get better. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, 
that's you know in part what 12 step is all about right engage in that um, find passions you know so that you can begin to enjoy your life in the moment as it is so you can you know, part of the outer circle of recovery is is finding those aspects of your life that keep you healthy mm-hmm. right? sometimes it's a struggle for people to find passions that they would enjoy um, and uh, and when you it, it does get better Right? Some people are in therapy for a long time. Eventually, they do it because they just they actually like the, and enjoy the process of, of uh, continuing to, to work on their stuff. That doesn't mean they're always in the depth of doing uh, working on trauma, right? mm-hmm. but um, they find that they're able to to work on things as they go along, right? But um, I feel that way about therapy right now. Do you? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, that's great. Not yeah. just because you know well, you're not my client anymore, <laughs> no, so it doesn't matter. So, so um, but but it's great because what it does is it says, you know what, um, um, I have my priority is my health, and and what this helps me to do is keep myself in a mentally healthy place. And so when I need to talk about something or work through something, you know, I have a sounding board and I can be vulnerable and learn to be vulnerable and continue and have somebody to hold me accountable for it. But. but um, but I think, uh, as far as getting back to what what's healthy, you know, we 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 start to learn you know, what's healthy sexuality. How do we start to uh, learn to connect in an intimate and healthy way, as opposed to unhealthy bonding and mm-hmm. trauma bond, right? Trauma repetition and repeating the same. And so, um, I think people tend when when they're able to stop doing that, they tend to experience the benefit of you know finding the joy or finding the hope. As they realize, huh, I'm not going to bars and picking up on people anymore. That's a good thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. I'm not not just because they they stopped, um, you know, in, in the first year of recovery and found some sobriety, but but they're not finding that drive to do it, and they start realizing, oh, as I work on my trauma, I don't. I realize why I was doing that, and now I want the real thing. You know, I use the I've said it to you probably, but I use this uh, caffeine-free diet coke. Uh, metaphor. Wait, so caffeine-free diet Coke. Sorry, Coke company, but uh, but it's the most useless substance ever. Right? <laughs> it, it serves no purpose. Think about it. Why do you drink Coke or diet Coke? Right? You drink it because it has caffeine in it. Right. And you drink regular Coke because it has sugar, and it gives you. And I guess it sort of tastes good if if you're in it. If you like right? that. If you like it, right? But so caffeine-free diet Coke does not have any sugar to give you any sugar rush. It doesn't have any caffeine so you're not getting any boost from caffeine you just get the, uh, the chemicals in there the that placebo get, yeah you get the you get the uh, the sweet light thing that's tell you it screws your brain up anyway and makes you think you have sugar and and in the end you just feel sick and bloated right? <laughs> that's kind of what acting out sexually is, especially mm-hmm. pornography right it's this pseudo form of intimacy that tricks your brain into think thinking you're getting the intimacy mm-hmm. um, and tricks your brain into thinking you're you're getting what you really want, and then when it's over, almost the second it's over, you feel sick and bloated. Mm-hmm. Right? And you're know, like, "What the hell? I don't, that didn't. That wasn't good." Right. All right. Let's catch up for that. Nice. Right. So, <laughs> so actually, what you really need is healthy food. You need sleep, so you're not so tired. You need healthy connection, mm-hmm. right? Healthy intimacy, and that's what recovery is about. You're learning, right? Hopefully through whether you're, whether you're treating trauma or whether you're uh, working on relationships and recovery, you're learning about healthy intimacy 
And that's where we can work on the way we can connect with people as a friend, as uh, we can be vulnerable, and, or as a partner, spouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for okay. your thoughts. Any other concluding thoughts on trauma for us today? Wow. Um, you know, I wish I had a profound poem. I, I should have prepared. <laughs> uh, uh, concluding thoughts. I would say this. Um, everybody experience some experiences some level of trauma in their lives. Right? And to me, the saddest thing and the, um, the most concerning thing is when people are walking around and holding that trauma, especially of sexual trauma and they've never told anyone they're, they're holding on and they're alone in it. Mm -hmm. I used to teach, uh, I taught for six years at Ohio State when I was a graduate student and I would uh, do this little survey in the PH class and we'd teach about sex and I'd always uh, ask about uh, certain questions about um, sexual abuse or assault. And um, out of a class of 50 students I got so that I could predict that uh, six to eight women, usually in the class, um, will have experienced some sort of sexual abuse in their life. And usually three of them had never told anyone. That's what they would say. It was an anonymous survey. Wow. Um, so these people were walking and walking around holding that. And um, that was a really powerful way to see that, right? And this was, you know, 50 students, three, right? Three's not a huge number, but that's a huge number that are holding it. Mm -hmm. right? It was every class, every quarter. It was almost always the same. So, um, what I would say is you don't have to be alone in it, right? The fact is, is uh, when, we, when we're alone in it, that's when I have power. Mm -hmm. As we share it and heal, um, we take that power back and, and we have the, the power then to, to live our lives and, and to thrive as opposed to um, carrying around no shame in being the, the, the control. Yeah, thank you. And I'm grateful for Dr. Glade and for his willingness to share his expertise with us online so that you can learn from them as well. I felt like I learned so much from him. And trauma is something that's difficult to deal with. It's something I'm still dealing with in my life. But I'm grateful for the things that I've learned and I'm grateful for his willingness to share that with all of us. As always, ladies, remember that no matter how you feel right now, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how traumatic some of those experiences that you have had are, because we all have our traumatic experiences from the past, you are worth recovery, 100% worth it. I know that. And if you don't, you can just rely on my knowledge until you feel that way. As always, please remember that I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. I hope you have a fantastic day. Until next time, Amy. of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.